Welcome back to the Compass live stream. Uh, a couple streams ago, I got muted right off the get-go and was afraid that was going to happen again. Um, anyway, happy Friday. We are pumped to be back streaming with two amazing guests um, on the best and also the only live stream dedicated to proof-of-work mining. Uh, pretty easy streaming competition here. Um, Austin and Bob are two miners. Uh, I'm going to let them give their introductions in just a minute. Before we get into the conversation, though, and intros and everything, I want to give a huge shout out to uh, all the Bitcoin miners in Denver um, who came out last night. We Compass hosted a happy hour, um, and it was a ton of fun. Uh, for some of us, a little too much fun. Um, can definitely feel it today, but Denver has an awesome Bitcoin crowd. If you notice, I don't have my regular setup uh, background and whatnot. I'm actually in Denver uh, with Will meeting some of these guys and girls. It was awesome. So thank you all for coming out. Enough about Denver, though. We're here to talk about hash rate. Um, the topic for today's stream is basically how long until we can expect Bitcoin's hash rate to make a full recovery and you know keep uh, going up and to the right on that, um, on that chart. Bob uh, from Barefoot Mining and Austin from Great American Mining um, are two people that Will and I both have an immense amount of respect for. They both know uh, a lot about mining. Um, I mean, everyone on this show does. Uh, but I'm going to let them now give uh, first Bob to you and then Austin introductions on you know, how you guys got into mining, um, where, where sort of you came from before mining and, and what each of you are working on um, at, at Barefoot and at, and at GAM. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, thanks, Zach. Thanks, Will. Uh, really a pleasure to be on here today. So um, as you probably tell, I'm one of the probably the older guys in the industry. Um, and my background's always been in, in technology. So it uh, goes back to 1986. I was uh, an electrical engineer, computer science guy coming out of college and worked on what was arguably the first laptop computer in 1986, kind of as my first project in school. And for those of you that are maybe a little older, eventually that wound me through to a company called Gateway, which was a, a large personal computer company in the 90s and 2000s, where I was a chief technology officer there. So I led all the product development, laptops, desktops, etc. Um, so it was an exciting time, um, kind of through the personal computer industry and the internet. And to be honest, I kind of thought like, man, I've, I've had a great ride. I've been through two major... Um, waves of technology and not necessarily riding off into the sunset, but, but, you know, not expecting that there was something going to be equally or greater in excitement ever crossing my path again. And then, uh, in 2017, uh, is when I entered mining and I entered mining in a funny way where I got a phone call from an acquaintance who said, Hey, Bob, can you design me an Ethereum mining machine? My knowledge at that point was pretty limited. Uh, and, uh, I didn't understand why he wanted that. So I, I, uh, I dug in, make a long story short. Um, he wanted to buy several hundred of these. Um, I had an old relationship with NVIDIA. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm another member of my team. So we had access to the chips, which were hard to get at the time. And we built several hundred machines for him. And I, I thought, wow, I'm back in the computer business again. And, uh, slowly that led to, I, I started asking other people, Hey, would you like one too? And uh, surprisingly, a number of people said yes, but a lot of them said yes, but only if you'll host it for me. So I ended up in hosting and then I saw how much money people were making. So I said, well, I better start taking some of these profits and put them back into machines for myself. So I started mining for, uh, for, for our company. 
And we still, by the way, do all those things. We, we, I ended up though, like a lot of people do, um, ended up as, uh, you know, started in Ethereum, found, um, my religion in Bitcoin, um, a little while later. And, um, we still have the Ethereum mining operations, but uh, sidetrack me for another time is we, we use all that to generate Bitcoin. So we're, gotcha. you know, it's you interesting know. how many miners, you know, Bitcoin miners currently started out as Ethereum miners. Um, I'm, I'm finding more and more of them every week. Uh, it's some of it's surprising. Some of it makes perfect sense, but it's definitely interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, go, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, so anyway, we ended up becoming, um, us distributor for a company called Bitfury, which is a larger European based, uh, ASIC company. And, uh, and now what we do kind of going forward is we're, we're very Bitcoin focused. Um, we've become focused on what I call boutique mining, which means, um, you know, we, we primarily are mining for ourselves or, or investors that we bring in. Um, you know, we like to focus on operations in size of like one to three to five megawatts. So we're not doing big, big installations, but maybe we'll talk about it later. I think it's an important part of the Bitcoin sure. infrastructure. And um, my, my vision is, um, I like to say it's like dandelions. You know, I want, I want to be the dandelions of the, of, the, of, the, of the ecosystem. And there'll be sure. so many of these sites in that size range. And it might even be smaller, it might be 300 kilowatts or 500 kilowatts or two megawatts. But I think, you know, a, a world populated with those, I think creates um, an indestructible, um, very reliable network. And so outside of the economic piece, in terms of, you know, what I want to contribute to the ecosystem, that's kind of, I feel the role we're playing. Awesome. Yeah, that's a beautiful strategy. I agree 100% with the uh, as much distribution of mining as possible. Austin, uh, great to have you on the show. We just had you before we started the live stream, we had you on the uh, the audio only podcast version uh, a bit ago. Um, always love chatting with you. Can you, you know, give us the, the quick and dirty rundown of uh, for, for people who may not know what you're what you're working on, um, how you got into mining and how you got into GAM uh, more specifically? Yeah, so quick, dirty rundown. Um, started doing some Ethereum GPU mining in like 2016. Uh, started building the container builds in 2017 and 2018 with the first company that I founded called Bearbox. And then Great American Mining, who I currently work for, and I'm technically my, my title is Director of Engineering. I build all of our containerized infrastructure and uh, design the electrical distribution systems and then also write the software that kind of makes the magic work. Um, we primarily focus on flare gas in the Bakken, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Texas, a couple other places. And yeah, same thing, you know, the boutique mining model, if you call it that, in that one to five megawatt range of deployments is kind of where we're uh, cutting our teeth. and. It's pretty interesting stuff, especially given the current economics, right? And so, yeah, I mean, we, like kind of one of the things at GAM, um, we design and build everything in-house, which is a little bit different than some other folks have done. And so it's, uh, it's an all day, every day endeavor to keep track on production supply lines and uh, all the supply chains that we're, we're currently going under. And I think that's what we're talking about on this podcast, right? Or this last year. 
So yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think that we got really two uh, interesting aspects here for this, or two interesting point of views for this stream. And we're talking about like hash rate and why hash rate rebounded the way it did. So we're hovering around like 123 exahash, I think, is what we saw earlier. Um, we might have a chart somewhere we can throw up as well. And uh, it's surprising to see like that hash rate came up. Uh, Zach had a bet earlier in the year. I forget it was on Twitter. He said like we use stakes through. Was that over 150 or under 150? Well, I forgot it? about that actually. Yeah, I might um might be in some hot water here. So I made a bet we won't be over 150 before the end of the year, basically. And you we're at, we're at one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's surprising to see that hash rate. Like, you, yeah, you're seeing that that V come right back up uh, as people are incentivized to get more um, miners onto the network. And so, I guess just to start off, Austin, are you surprised to see this hash rate uh, rebound so quickly? And then, Bob, will move over to you and kind of work through your recent article. Uh, no, I'm not. I mean, if, like if you've got visibility into some of the larger orders that were placed by these larger institutional North American miners, like the hash rate that's coming online right now isn't the same hash rate that left China, right? These are orders that were placed a year ago that are now being delivered for facilities that started builds a year ago, and they're just now being racked and lit. And so. When I think about it, I'm like, yeah, you know, extra 20 eggs of hash in the last month or two, nothing crazy. Like that's all stuff that was already planning on coming online and already ordered and already had infrastructure for it. It's just the the exodus of miners from China and finding rack space for those guys. Like it's that's not coming online before the end of the year or a small, small, small minority of it will. So. Now, Bob, same question to you. Are you surprised to see the hash rate rebounding so quickly uh, over the last few months? I mean, it's been what since it was late June when the uh, edict kind of came out, and here we are in August and we've seen a decent amount of hash rate come back. Uh, slightly surprised by the magnitude, certainly not the direction, but maybe slightly surprised by the magnitude. But I think uh, so. I think I'm, I'm on the whole in, in alignment with Austin on this one. I think it's important to remember, Austin kind of alluded to it there's there's kind of four categories of hash out there okay there's there's um the old uh chinese infrastructure that got decommissioned there is the chinese infrastructure that was on order and planned because they they had orders right they had a big queue going and then there was the existing primarily north american and european infrastructure that existed and then there's the the planned infrastructure for those groups. So I think those there's four different kind of groups kind of working um, in tandem. And uh, as Austin said, I mean, I'm, 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 I've got a, a small facility coming up in uh, South Carolina that I'll be up next week as we basically are flipping the switch. And, you know, we've been working for a long time on that. I know Austin's got projects he's been working on and, and all over, you know, we've been working for months to, to create this stuff. So um, <clears throat> when we see the hash rate recover, Austin put it really well, the hash rate coming back is largely not the Chinese. The, the caveat I'll throw, and there's no way to prove it, is I do think a little bit more of the Chinese infrastructure ended up heading to Kazakhstan and Georgia and you know some of those Eastern European locations than I would have expected. I only know that... Um, you know, I, I'm only surmising that from conversations I've had from other people. Obviously, we can't tell. So I think a little bit more of that came online. Um, some of the Chinese folks that I've talked to, 
are very nervous about it. They're nervous about jurisdictional issues, which I'm sure we'll touch on at some point here. You know, where do you go? But there's some desperation as well. That oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they lost everything. I mean, it's 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 tragic, really. It's, Quick call it's, up for you, Bob there. Uh so Vincent Vong, who's our procurement officer at Compass, he's on a Twitter space with us the other day. He's talking about how there's a lot of Chinese miners are holding their next gen equipment in storage instead of sending it over to the US. Or, I mean, they, they, obviously they're having a hard time finding stuff, but they're not liquidating. And they're also just like not moving it quite yet because uh, it's also like prohibitively expensive to ship stuff right now. And so uh, that is like a play that ASIC prices will continue to go up. And we're seeing that kind of affect the ASIC market right now in May and June when everyone saw this edict come out. They thought hey, ASIC prices are going to tank because there's going to be a lot of liquidations. That kind of happened for like a second, but not really. Uh, we've seen ASIC prices still be really high. So wondering what you've heard about that from your contacts. Um, maybe also if you have some thoughts on that as well. Yeah, so I think um, a couple a couple of things, right? The ASIC supply chain right now is just totally borked. I mean, you can look at the secondary markets, you can look at the primary markets, you can look at the number of contracts that have been canceled with like down payments or deposits that are just never going to be recovered. Um, I think it's a lot worse than a lot of people who are kind of fleeing China are alluding to. And my, my personal thesis is there's like a cabal of miners with this huge oversupply of ASICs that they can't find capacity to plug in, but they're slowly dripping them into the market to not crash the price. So they can recover some of the capital, which I mean, is what I would do, frankly. And so I, I think it's um, it's a little bit manipulated, number one. Number two, shipping, shipping prices like freight from China right now, I think the last quote that I saw was like 24 grand for a 20 foot standard ISO, which is insane. Um, last year there were 10 grand, which was still insane. Before that it was like 4,500, five grand. And even the container prices that like we see locally for new one-time use, like 20 foot standard or 40 foot standard have gone up almost 250 to 300% since the last year, right? And so the supply chains all over the world are, as Marty likes to say, just borked out of control, right? And I don't think it's gonna recover anytime soon. And so like we, you know, we buy a significant amount of electrical components and supply from some of the largest manufacturers in the country. And we're already getting like pushed lead times on things that previously I could see turn around in, you know, 21 days or 28 days. And now it's 35, 42, 49, indefinite. Um, as, as all of that continues to unfold as these, you know, call them like small tyrant authoritarian jurisdictions begin locking people down again, we'll start to see even, even bigger slowdowns. And so it's, um, it's an interesting problem on the on the infrastructure side, like in terms of not only like how fast can you build transformers, but how fast can you source the components for those transformers? What does your labor market look like for the people who are going to build them? And uh, there's a lot of stuff that is is going to complicate all this hatchery coming back online for sure. Yeah, we're trying to get an image up of that really quick. That uh, that chart showing the prices for containers uh, is just like astronomical, parabolic, which is wild. Bob, what about uh, from your context and people you've seen? Um, yeah. Or, or um, some, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. A couple things. One, um, one thing I forgot to mention about the hash rate recovery is um, 
I, I have a suspicion um, that I, obviously I cannot validate it, that some of the larger Chinese miners knew it was coming. Um, and and because uh, I have I've talked to some that have a lot of mining capacity and they already this is even goes back to disrupt for those of you who are at, you know, disrupt in July, they already had stuff in the U S in containers looking for, looking for a home. So if you do the math on that, what Austin said, you know, it's hard to get a container. They're expensive. It takes a long time to decommission a unit. So I think some of that hash, I think they found some homes for some of that. So some of that hash came back a little quicker. Um, I have had some offers from some of them to buy some of the older stuff. This is like pre S nine generation stuff. I was, I was a little surprised it was even in play, but there was a a fair amount of that sort of stuff. And I think we've seen that in the market, but everything else as Austin said, I've said, well, I don't, I don't want to buy any of that stuff, but you know, will you buy, will you sell me some S 19s or 17s or, you know, other things. And, and they, they are still hoping to find homes for those. I'm not sure where. I'm know we're going to cover that in a little bit, but but yeah. um, but so they're still holding, as you as you said, Austin. And I think part of it too is that that they don't want to flood the market and and uh, and but but the new the new stuff is pretty expensive too. The spot market, especially for that new stuff, is ridiculous. Yeah, it's it, spot market. So <laughs> there's a lot of stuff I want to touch on there. Uh, spot market, though, really quick. It's kind of interesting. You see uh, spot A6 priced above futures uh, or future deployments, um, which you know doesn't happen too often. But I think backing up just a minute, I think the breakdown, Bob, you gave in Austin uh, corroborated of, you know, the the demographics, I guess, basically of what type of hash is coming online, what hash has disappeared and, and where it's sort of sitting was beautiful. Um, because, you know, we've seen this rebound. We're above 120 exahash. I might have to be buying somebody stakes on Twitter in a couple months. Um, but it's not, it's not Chinese hash that's coming back online. Like they are, uh, I forget who used the word, but they're, they're desperate and it's, they're, we have, we've talked about this on a couple of previous live streams. They're not used to like the North American mining market is very different from the Asian mining market in terms of contracts that are set, um, how revenue is shared and profits are distributed, that sort of stuff. Um, and not only was this sort of like a last minute for most miners, I agree with Bob, like some of these miners had to have known something was coming, like, um, just from the way Chinese industry works in many cases, uh, they, they probably had some sort of, uh, inkling or, or a slight heads up, but, um, the, they're desperate and shipping is expensive and they don't want to flood the markets if they can't find space. Everyone's trying to find space. Um, and there's this huge, this huge glut of hardware. So I don't, I don't know if I want to throw around the word, you know, like manipulated, uh, too much, but I mean, there's definitely that, that, that vibe for sure, where a lot of these ASICs are sitting there in storage. Um, and, you know, some of these miners probably know in the back of their minds, like they're just not going to find uh, rack space for all of them, but they don't want to just go market, sell them in a week and, and tank prices. So it's a little bit of a, of a tricky line to, to walk there. Um, I don't know. Any other thoughts on I, I did want to touch. We basically already covered it, but I did want to touch on sort of the, the breakdown of what type of hash rate is coming online. Any other thoughts on, before we move on to looking at a little bit of the research and analysis Bob has done any other thoughts on like what type of hash is coming online, what type of hash is 
uh, prevented from being uh, put back online now um, and sort of when, if or when those Chinese miners are going to catch a break and be able to fully power on all their machines again? Austin or Bob, either one. I'll just, I'll just state the obvious that if you've, if you've got a bunch of equipment on the sidelines, you're going to, you're going to put your most efficient stuff in play first, right? So as you find the energy, find a, a spot, regardless of where it is, you're going to put your best stuff in place first. Right. And so, um, as you follow that through what you end up realizing is that the oldest stuff is going to come online last. And by the time it comes on, it probably doesn't have the right economics. And so, um, and we're going to talk about the paper I wrote, but I mean, roughly my, my estimate was, at least twenty percent of this will never see the light of day again. You know that that um, you know, and and that would include most. I think of the S nine class stuff that's in China now. We'll never we'll never see the light of day again. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we can jump into it here in just a minute. Um, your your analysis, but there's yeah, you obviously want the newer machines online sooner because you have like higher ticket hardware to ROI on. Then you have like as you go down the tiers, just an army of of old ASICs, uh, a lot of which is in storage, people are trying to find space for. And um, I mean, if we're looking at, you know, 500,000, a million dollar Bitcoin, the, the, those machines can be pretty profitable. I think like for your S9, you need you need anything lower than like 14 cent power, I think, to be profitable. Um, but yeah, the, there, there are a lot of machines that probably won't, won't be back online anytime soon. Um, but let's talk. Let's talk uh, some numbers really briefly here. Um, one of the reasons I wanted Bob on the show is not just because he's a cool guy and has a, a great Twitter handle, uh, Boomer underscore BTC, but he also uh, wrote some uh, analysis on basically, well, like the topic of the show: when we can expect uh, hash rate to sort of recover, um, based on you know past difficulty cycles, um, average growth uh, in hash rate historically. Um, we're really having struggles here with our <laughs> with our screen sharing for images and stuff. But uh, Bob, can you while we're sorting this out on the back end, can you just give us a high level overview on you know the topic of of your paper and research um, and and what got yeah. you started? Basically, the the model you built. Yeah. So what I did is I said, well, there's um, you know, first, how much how how many machines are there? What's the magnitude of the situation? So um, and it's in the article that that Zach's referring to, but. I calculated there are roughly two million ASICs that were that were that were in China that were going to be decommissioned. So, um, you know, give or take probably ten percent, that number is accurate. Um, and if if I'm inaccurate, by the way, I'm probably probably low. It probably would be to the sure. higher side that I was wrong if I was wrong. Um, but then I started digging deeper because um you know i run a mining company it's what i do and and i said you know what what is the impact of this and so my thought wandered to um block times and so i'll tell you the impetus for it we'll come back to it later but for those of you less you know uh, driven on a day-to-day basis by mining revenue it's kind of a standard calculation people use which is 144 blocks a day right because it's the simple the simple math of 10 minute block times times how many 10 minute segments in a day. But if, if we're running faster than that, um, that means more blocks and that means more minor revenue. Um, 
with, by the way, without any additional operating cost, right? Cause, cause we all have the same operating cost, regardless of how many, how many blocks get mined per day. So if that number goes up, our revenue goes up and this thing gets even better, right? There's, we're a, we're a, we're a bigger, it, it take a, let's say a one megawatt operation at, on, on, on one day you're a certain percentage of the world's hash power. And the next day you're one, one point, uh, you're a little bit higher. And, and, but then if the block times are, are faster too, and that's, that's additive. So I was curious and I went down into the rabbit hole because of that. That was the impetus of it. Um, so what I did was um, I, uh, the chart that's up now is I said, well, let me divide the world into the um, China hash rate coming back online and the rest of the world and its plans to already recover. Now you can see already that I that I undershot this in this estimate. This was done in mid July, so for for people's reference. And I will do a re I will redo it at some point. Well, I'll put it up publicly, um, you know, maybe based on the, the latest difficulty adjustment. But directionally, it's still correct. Um, and so you can see here that basically what's happening is I'm saying, you know, how many units practically could come back online, and that's that's in large part due to you know. How many locations do I think they are? How much labor is involved in putting something back online? Um, you know, a lot of those sort of factors. I also went back. I hadn't actually done it before, but I was curious to see what the average for for hash rate coming back online um, each difficulty adjustment. So it works out to be about uh, over the last three years about two point two five exahashes uh, per second per difficulty adjustment. So that's basically the average. And so, um, and I saw that accelerating. So I built that in and you can see the rate of the acceleration um, um, here. Cause it, comp it starts compounding, right? There's a, yeah. there's a compound effect of that. So it starts accelerating. So I divide it by um, difficulty adjustment epochs. So that's what that means uh, if you're looking at it. So um, the, the epoch 345 was the one that uh, started after the July 31st adjustment. And if you flow this one through, that would take you through July of next year, if I'm approximately right. So this is roughly a one-year look at, at the, the situation. Gotcha. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I think, uh, I mean, initially, I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on on whether you're surprised we're sitting at 120 exahash, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, just because like, I'm, I'm a little surprised that it's rebounded, you know, about what is it like 20, 30% off of the, the local bottom for hash. Um, but like the this, this model to me, like when I first read it, um, and we first started chatting on Twitter, it makes a lot of sense to me. I think the timeline is is, is pretty accurate, but we may, you know, we may definitely see it recover a little bit faster than we expect. Um, that sort of, that sort of re recovery though, like we, like we talked about a minute ago is coming from, from very different hash power that, that was taken offline in the first place. Um, more brand new hash power coming from North America, parts of Latin America, Eastern Europe, that sort of stuff. Um, this is really cool data. I appreciate the research you did. Uh, Bob, for everyone watching, the article is called Wayward Block Times and Their Impact on Bitcoin Mining. Um, it's on Medium. Uh, it's all over uh, Twitter, been shared a bunch. Uh, definitely go read through it and check it out. Um, 
I don't know, Austin, you and I have talked about hash rate recovery, like directionally speaking, I guess, with Bob's data. Um, do you like, what are your thoughts? Do you agree with it directionally? Do you think it's a little bit um, overblown in terms of the time expected for recovery? Uh, I know you also are expecting sort of a prolonged period of time before we see, you know, hash rate back to new all time highs. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yes. Yeah, so I was looking for one of the models that we have internally and I'm not, I'm not projecting that we reached like 250 eggs a hash on network until I don't know, November of next year, somewhere in that range. Right. And yeah. that's just, that's just from like my understanding of what the current, uh, production rate is on the miners and what some of these contracts I've seen for larger scale folks coming into the U.S. and the North American markets. Um, China, you know, and that entire band kind of threw a wrench in that model. Um, but at the same time, you know, I look at the amount of skilled labor and just flat out materials that you need to put that, put that hash rate in Kazakhstan or in Georgia or in you know, South America, or I mean, wherever it's not, it's not an easy undertaking. And I mean, look, even here, like, I don't think ERCOT does substation tie-ins until like October. And so any of the new hatchery that's like planning in any, any of these big meg, like mega facilities in West Texas, none of that's coming on until October of next year. And so we've yeah. got, you know, not in addition to material and supply chain issues, You've also got labor shortage issues and you also just have timing issues and in terms of when these big substations can tie in. So off grid, like what we do, it's a little bit more like we're able to elastically expand given like a few variables um, around air emissions, but it's, it's not going to happen as fast as people think what we have coming on right now and what we'll have coming on for the next six to eight months were projects that were started 12 months ago. That's it. Interesting. Just, just because people didn't know about them doesn't mean they don't exist, right? <laughs> like, just because it wasn't built into your model doesn't mean there's not like a 200 megawatt facility in West Texas that's coming online this October that was planned and built, like started built like last last year. And so, I think the majority of that stuff will be next October, um, where we'll just see just an explosion of hash rate. But uh, in the meantime, it's it's kind of dink and dunk here and there for, you know, 25 megawatts, 50 megawatts and below. Yeah, I'm yeah just to follow up there really quick. Oh, go ahead, Bob. I was just going to say, I'm in, I'm in violent agreement, but I, I just pulled my numbers back up. And so I think Austin and I, in terms of when we reach 250, we're within about probably four weeks of each other in terms of our estimates. So we may have pulled forward a little bit this first part, but... That you know, it'll it'll adjust back, and something on the order of that table that we, we put up a few minutes ago is going to happen. Something some nice, yeah, some nice confluence there. That's a good sign. <laughs> so, really quick, uh, between Austin and Bob, I uh, want to get your thoughts on like where this X hash is coming from in terms of facilities, and then what you guys think going forward. Because we bottomed to like ninety X hash, I think was kind of like the bottom of uh, hash right there, and now it's like up to one twenty. I'm wondering, have you guys seen it's just you said Dink and Dunk been parts of like some facilities with a few megawatts, using things like wine so come online with tons of megawatts. Uh so far has like the the last 30, 40 exahash that's come online, has that mostly been 
um, like one certain type of facility? And then going forward, do you expect it to be like a mix of off-grid and like medium-sized facilities? Or do you see like these larger facilities like Winestone kind of dominating the market going forward? Um, yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's an interesting question. So I think both, right? I think if you can get the economics, like obviously there's advantages to doing things at scale, um, like the Winston facility or any, any of the other West Texas developments that, you know, they're subsidized in a small way by having a hundred thousand square foot footprint, um, where they you know, fall into the sales tax exemption. There are some demand response programs within ERCOT that allow them to, you know, take advantage of some pretty decent pricing, uh, depending on the term of the PPA or, you know, power option agreement, whatever you want to do. And so I, I think that long-term, you know, I'm, I'm very bullish on Texas and these, these larger grid builds. Um, I wish the incentives weren't aligned around some of the renewable like production tax credits and investment tax credits that the federal government gives for the power generators. But that's not that's not a thing that I can solve. Uh, at the same time, some of your like off grid or islanded setups, you've got you have like real lead times on generator builds or turbine builds, right? Like you can you can get a Cat thirty five twenty right now and pay for it, but you're not going to get it for nine or ten months. Um, and so there's there's some problems like all around and like getting the physical infrastructure required to generate electricity off grid. And a lot of people just don't know about them. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's complicated. I think we end up with a good mix though, right? Like over the next year, year and a half, while the larger facilities come online and, you know, really start to energize some of these subs, there's a great opportunity for the elastic expansion of like smaller mining facilities that can ROI hardware very cheaply, like within that year. And then after that, I think difficulty and hash rate just kind of trained up and up and up. And it's uh, it's always a race to the bottom. That's it. It's a race to the bottom on your all electricity costs, on your operating expenses outside of your electricity costs, and then how efficiently you can run the machines. So I think we get a mix of both um, over the next year. And then a lot of it's going to be dominated by these big builds but jurisdictionally you got a ton of risk if you're doing it anywhere other than texas like new york zone d's got great pricing right that north iso great pricing but who's going to stand up a big facility in new york right now exactly right and so a lot of a lot of things to consider i'm super bullish on texas uh too i think you know, if, if things start hitting the fan in the U.S., there's no better place to be. Maybe, you know, Wyoming, Montana out there, too. But um, <laughs> Zach I can't that yesterday. <laughs> yeah, Where do you want to be if things really hit the fan? And Zach's like, I want to be in Austin. I said, do you want to be in a major city? And yeah, I don't think Texas through enough, but it's all good. Texas forever. Um, I, I kind of want to pick up what Austin was just touching on there uh, for both Bobby and Austin, because it's it's pretty fascinating in my mind to watch, you know, about a year ago, everyone was talking about the main pain point in mining being uh, machine supply. Um, everyone wanted machines or enough to go around um, it, in most part, you know, secondary markets uh, for machines were, were red hot. And now sort of the entire market has flip flopped where like there's a ton of machines. We talked about this uh, earlier in this conversation, a lot in storage, but there's definitely no shortage of ASICs anymore. The shortages are, are very much elsewhere. Um, 
And I kind of want to break down a little bit if you guys can share like some of the lead times exactly you're seeing, like where the main pain points are in terms of uh, building out new infrastructure, equipping all the electrical uh, outfitting that needs to be done to actually, you know, have a facility prepared to receive and and install ASICs. Um, I mean, right now you try and buy a couch or a fridge, you're looking at at least an eight month uh, lead time for basic stuff like that. And um, the the lead times for some of this... um, infrastructure build out that is needed for a mining facility, I would guess is at least, at least in that time range. Um, I don't know what sort of delays lead times are you guys seeing for some of this stuff? Uh, Bob, uh, first to you and then hand it back to Austin. Yeah. Um, so well, we'll start with the ASICs themselves. Um, obviously it depends on what, what you want to buy, but I mean, we'll just say you're, you're, you're well into next year at this point for any material purchase. Right. And uh, depending on, there's some unannounced stuff that's coming. Um, that obviously, I can't talk about, but but I have some knowledge of, and you know that stuff's in the second early second half of next year. Um, but you know we we can start placing orders for some of that now. Um, you know, kind of the stuff that's in the market today, though, even just kind of a S nine eighteen class sort of thing. You know, we're we're well into Q one um, for any material order. Um, we'll, we'll fill in little gaps here and there, you know, on spot market stuff. We talked about that before. Um, you know, Austin will probably be better to discuss some of the other stuff because we, we don't build containers. Um, we buy them, but you know, our, our typical suppliers, you know, we're into early next year just for a container itself. And even at that, like one of the ones that we're having built right now, the, 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 the suppliers missing, um, some of his dates because of some of the little pieces um, in the electrical infrastructure that just aren't there and stuff sure. stuck on boats stumps, you know, um, the, the, you know, so, so, I mean, if, if, if even a very small project, you know, a half a kilo, a half a megawatt, a megawatt kind of project, you know, it would probably be miraculous to put that together in six months at this point. Miracle in six months. That's, that's pretty incredible. Um, just in terms of the delays we're looking at, I know I've had a couple of chats with Steve Barber who also builds, uh, things similar to what you guys are working on, uh, Austin. And he said, yeah, like he's, you know, some of his suppliers are just like, we don't, like we don't we don't have these parts right now. Um, what sort of lead times are you are you looking at or are you hearing and seeing for you know basic electrical stuff and, and hardware that you need to build out a farm? Yeah. Um, so a bunch of a bunch of stuff, right? Like I alluded to earlier, kind of our larger uh, distribution items, um, panels, switchboards. Those got pushed from like 21 day standard lead time, like four weeks to now like 35 days. And so not a huge thing. And it's not a material component issue. It's a labor issue. So like you still have some states and then the federal government still has some uh, unemployment subsidies for these folks who simply don't want to go back to work. And so you can't hire good labor to actually do the physical, the physical labor to put these things together, palletize them and ship them. Right. Um, for minor cables so like we you know have custom orders with large manufacturers of minor cables the order that i placed 17 weeks ago that was eight week aro just showed up 
last week. <laughs> right. And so, and like I had to threaten him. I was like, dude, I'm going to cancel this whole order. It's like a hundred thousand dollar order. I'm going to cancel the whole thing unless it shows up. And then magically it got shipped like the next week after that. Right. And so we started bringing a lot of stuff in house. Um, just because I can't, I can't continue to like rely on other people for things that we could build ourselves, even at a little bit of a higher cost and get them out the door, not in six months, but in eight to 10 weeks. And so for the most part, it is just the labor to actually physically build these things, which we have here. It's just sourcing materials. We've had to get a little bit creative with some, uh, some of the copper wire, um, like even little things like ferrules, like the feral ends that go on minor cables or even like our big landings, those things are hard to find. And I'm just like, I call, like we have a custom metal shop that does a lot of work for us. And I called him the other day and I was like, Hey, can you build this? He was like, I don't know. Like bring me one. I'll see because our, our normal suppliers just don't have them. And so we've gotten pretty creative, but uh, yeah, lead times and supply chains, like I said earlier, just borked out of control. And if you're doing like we've got, I don't know, I have like a 30 or 40 container backlog at this point that'll roll out over the next couple of months. And I've got everything on order, but whether or not it shows up on time is the question. For sure. Yeah, I think we see like a bunch of these public miners, uh, you know, placing huge orders and they love to announce them for for ASICs and stuff. Um, the like, I mean, the whole question we're talking about this afternoon is like, where are they going to put them? And, you know, they're not getting all the ASICs at once, obviously, but it's cool to announce you bought, you know, 50,000 ASICs, but, uh, finding plugs for those computers is, is a completely different, uh, situation. And from what you guys are saying, the lead times there are sort of aligning perfectly with like what we just talked about in terms of hash rate recovery predictions, you know, next July, next October, November, or something like that. Um, and then, you know, I, I agree 100% with what Austin said a bit ago. Like once we reach that like tipping point or breaking point or threshold, whatever you want to call it, there's going to be an explosion. Like everything's going to come back online. People are like a lot of these bottlenecks are going to be worked out, ironed out. And, uh, you know, hopefully at that point we see some great price action to accompany the hash rate action too. Um, but there is definitely the 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 bottleneck is gonna is gonna burst uh at some point and it's just gonna be an avalanche of of new hash power coming online it'll be fun to watch but until then you know lots of pain points like you guys are describing yeah one little anecdote people might uh enjoy here is um i mentioned we have a, a new facility small facility coming online in south carolina and um we had a couple parts not come through at the last minute and uh so i had yesterday i had parts of my team banging around junkyards in South Carolina, buying wire and we found a panel, but we literally bought stuff in a junkyard yesterday um, just to get this thing up and going. So, um, you know, that's, that's what we resorted. Thank God we found it, but we found, found what we needed, but yeah, that's, that's where we are. Yeah. Bob, follow up on that. Actually, I'm wondering if there's like a silver lining to any of this, because we've seen it in other places where companies like Bitcoin mining firms are having to uh, vertically integrate everything right now because they have to figure out how to get all these systems up and going uh, and rely on themselves. So do you think that's going to lead to like a more robust industry in five years from now? Or is it really just right now because of supply chain issues, this is only a momentary problem and a year from year or two from now, uh, firms are going to go back to the way they've been doing business before, which is they're just like focusing on one aspect of their operation. It's a great question. Um, 
you know, five years out is, is a ways. I will say that what we've looked at in the short to medium term is that we're going to have to be more vertically integrated. So I can answer that in the short to medium term. And um, we have looked at producing our own containers um, and we would do it for ourselves, by the way, we're not in the market really of selling to other people, but saying, yeah, Hey, we, we may have to take this on ourselves because as I said, at least we're in control. At least we know what's happening. Um, and, and uh, you know, I've all, I mean, I, I don't want to say too much, but as you can tell from my shirt, I was down in El Salvador. And like one of the things I've looked at is like, Hey, if I, if I expand my footprint outside the U S do I have to bring some of those vertical capabilities into these other areas of the world? Um, and uh, you know, that's, uh, that's something that's, that I'm, I'm bantering about right now is, is should I, should I build containers in El Salvador, for instance, I mean, that's, those are for sure processes I have. Yeah, no, that's something I want to touch on, actually, because we've talked about, you know, you guys both work at companies that are uh, deploying uh, small to mid-scale operations all over the place. Um, And totally okay if you're not, if you don't want to talk about exactly where these deployments are. But I'm just curious to know sort of your thought process or like regions you would not consider or if you're open to power anywhere, basically inside, outside the US, no matter where it is, like where, where are you looking actively now, like given everything that's going on, given these longer lead times, um, given the glut of ASICs, um, given everyone's trying to plug in machines that were taken online and new machines they ordered, like your day to day, where are you looking to, you know, these little, these little uh, operations around the world, where are you looking to set these up? Um, what's your, you know, evaluation analysis process in terms of where you're going to deploy next? Um, Austin, I'll hand it to you and then and then back to Bob. Yes, yeah, so we are um, we're Great American Mining, right? Uh, at the end of the day, like we don't have any plans right now to expand outside of the United States or maybe even Canada on like a smaller scale. Jurisdictionally, um, I, I weigh risk, similar to like how some of the oil and gas companies who've tried to operate uh, past our southern border have like run into issues where you show up one day with equipment. You set up a workover rig or drilling rig, like you show up the next week and the old thing's gone and chopped up, right? And so I think in within the United States, it gives um, it gives investors or any type of institutional capital uh, pretty decent um, security in terms of their investment, like what kind of money is pouring into a company and where is it going? In addition to like some of the property laws here that are really strong and, you know, further kind of down that rabbit hole when you look at different jurisdictions within the United States, like I, I'll, I'll never deploy in Washington state, right? I saw what happened in Washington state in 2017, where a bunch of the pods just went in and like unilaterally raised rates on these PPAs. Once you do it once, like I'll never deploy there again. Same thing with like New York state. I'll never plug anything into New York state. Um, Texas is fantastic. North Dakota's fantastic. Oklahoma's fantastic. Pennsylvania's growing on me a little bit. Um, Ohio's fantastic. Like all the jurisdictions where you know that you have people who, number one, want to make money. Number two, are entrepreneurial enough to have the, uh, I guess you'd call it political capital to where they're not going to, they're not going to throw something like totally out the window just because of some like hysterical climate headlines. Right. And so jurisdiction, big one, um, Number two, like power costs. So I, I kind of like bang this drum internally at 
great American mining all the time. Like guys, like we are, you know, we're converting flare gas, but we can't be like held to this narrative because I'm totally unbiased about what the energy input is. All I care about is price. That is it. For sure. I think that the miner who is tied to a narrative over a long enough time and doesn't care as much about the price, like doesn't end up being a miner over a long enough timeline because you're going to get pushed out of the market. That's entirely zero sum. And so, yeah, price of power. And that's like all in. Um, So there's a lot of stuff like off grid where you have to pay mineral rights owners, royalties on the gas. Like there's a lot that goes into that calculation. Um, But yeah, jurisdiction, power price, pretty much it. Like weather, I don't really care about. There's always ways to like, like Alex Epstein says, climate mastery. Like we can master any climate. We're, we're being pretty uh, pretty competitive in terms of how we're using energy. To say that it's too hot in West Texas to run air-cooled mines, like there's a there's a way to figure that out if the power's cheap enough. And so, sure. yeah, weather, jurisdiction, power price, that's it. Yeah, just cool. jump in there really quick. The, the points you're making are interesting to see play out right now. Uh, the Pennsylvania one, especially like Zach and I went to college in Pennsylvania together, and there's just loads of old power plants sitting around that state just doing absolutely nothing because it's all like Rust Belt infrastructure that has been collapsing. And now people are picking up the phone. They own these old power stations and they want to put Bitcoin miners in them, even though they haven't been running for 20 plus years. So yeah, it's really interesting to see like all that old infra coming back online through Bitcoin mining. Yeah, I appreciated the the Ohio and PA shout out too. I think we talk about mining in North America it's it's pretty much Texas and Wyoming that that take center stage there, but you have you have you have it scattered all over. Um, Bob, we have a couple people in the chat asking if you're uh, if you're going to start deploying machines to volcano powered uh, farms in in El Salvador. There, uh, same question to you. Like, where where are you looking at um, in terms of where 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 you would deploy? Um, I guess if there are any areas uh, similar to what Austin mentioned, where you're like we're, we're never going to plug anything in there again. Um, and if so, like what's, what's on that, uh, shit list for you, um, you, just your thought process in general for deployments and, uh, location. Got it. Well, I'll answer the question first. Um, uh, I am open to it. So the answer is I am open to the volcano powered stuff. Um, it's not quite ready yet. Um, but it's also not that far away. So it, it, it will happen. Frankly, it meets my criteria. So I'm not saying I'm doing it or not doing it. We're not quite there. But jurisdictionally, um, you know, can't find a government that supports us better than El Salvador, right? In our in what we're doing. Um and it, you know, I I I mentioned before I like boutique mining as this Austin, but I also like off-grid boutique mining even better. I'm not a hundred percent opposed to the right grid solution. We have a little bit on grid right now. But I really prefer off-grid. I'm in control. So you know, that's another piece for me. Friendly jurisdiction. But even with that, if I can control it and be off-grid, I like it. Because um, I think as regulation comes in, it, it's probably not going to typically be in the form of bans. I think it's going to be in the form of taxation. Um, or some sort of, you know, some sort of charge. And I think they'll try to leverage the grid to do that. So I think even in a less friendly place, um, you might still be okay um, if if you're off grid. Um, <clears throat> places I hate, um, 
I hate the entire West Coast uh, for mining. Um, <laughs> I hate I hate Oregon, California, uh, and Washington. I won't I, I won't do a thing there. No chance. Um, I won't do Illinois. I won't do New York. Um, won't do Massachusetts. Not saying there are even opportunities in some of these places, but they're off the list. Like it doesn't. Don't even call me. I, I don't need to talk to you. So um, those are off off the list. Um, certainly, I like Texas. Um, trying to. I live in Florida, by the way. I'm trying to see what we can do down here. Um, you know, and, and I know there are there are initiatives. I don't have anything yet, but I would. You know, again, it kind of ticks the boxes. I'm not afraid of the heat, like Austin. I think we can handle all those sort of things. Um, I'm already. I'm in. I'm in South Dakota, Nebraska. Um, that region up through North Dakota, I'm completely open to. I like all those places. Um, and I'm fine with Appalachia. So the area that you're talking about, you know, the Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, Southern, uh, Northern West Virginia, all that sort of area. There's a lot For of sure. opportunities. There's a lot of opportunities in those areas outside the U S. Um, you know, I, El Salvador obviously is interesting. Um, the, the piece that has to be worked on there, frankly, is cost. The, the cost structure is not there right now. And then until there's some stuff to be worked out and I'm trying. Um, uh, there are other countries in that region that have a lot of stranded energy. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, interestingly, like I'm not opposed to it, but I, I, I still don't know how to quite make wind and solar. So there's a lot of focus, like there's some massive solar farms in El Salvador. Very, very interesting. But, you know, how do you how do you handle the other 12 hours of the day is, is a, is a big issue and the economics I'm not quite sure can add up. Um, I've looked, we've, we've had members of our team over in places like Georgia country, Georgia before and Kazakhstan. Um, I'm, I'm not quite there yet. I just, I don't, I feel it's, you, you can, you can go there, you can get some good costs, but I just, to me, there's too much risk of, of, um, something happening, your, your equipment being nationalized or seized or something like that. It's just, sure. Just too risky. So. No, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, we, we have a couple people in the chat pointing out that, uh, yours and Austin's shit lists are, are basically all, all blue States, not to, uh, you know, politicize it too much, but, uh, red States, good blue States, bad, maybe for mining, uh, kind of a funny breakdown there. Um, yeah, it's not a political statement necessarily, but, but it, it, it is that way because I mean, let's just be real. Like, Hey, if, 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 um, you're in a state where, and by the way, it's when you say jurisdictional, there's the legal aspect. And then there's a, Hey, are you welcome here? Are you welcome in the community? Are you, yeah. are, are your workers going to be there? Are, you know, all, so it's not, it's not just the legal aspect. It's like, Hey, you know, do you want to go where you're invited to the party and you're welcome? Or do you want to go where you're, you know, the uninvited guest that nobody really wants there, even if legally you could be there. Cold shoulder. Yeah, for sure. Nobody wants a cold shoulder. Um, Interesting, interesting breakdown uh, from both you guys. I appreciate that. Um, and you mentioned you mentioned Florida, Bob, briefly. I know uh, Miami's mayor, uh, super, super. I mean, he's talked about it a lot. Um, haven't seen too many like concrete steps taken to attract miners there. Um, and yeah, Florida Power isn't isn't the cheapest in the U.S. But if if we see this this price continue to go up, you know, people 
absolutely will plug in uh, machines at, at Florida power costs. Um, it's interesting you mentioned solar too. We had uh, a full live stream about that a couple of weeks ago. And what we basically settled on in terms of economics is you're, you're pretty much going to be intermittent mining with, with renewables uh, if, if that's what you choose to power your facility or your, your ASICs with. Um, I think there's attractive options for, for solar farms to expand into mining um, on the side. In terms of miners, you know, seeking out solar power, it, it, it maybe not won't work as well uh, in that direction. Um, but you uh, use immersion, overclock your ASICs a little bit um, and set up a good intermittent system. Um, it may wear down the lifetime of the machines a bit, but you can you can make it work if you're there's probably a lot easier ways to get cheap power, but if you're if if you're set on solar, there are definitely strategies to make it work. Um, we're coming up on on close to time here. Um, w- one thing we haven't really talked about the price too much, but I do want to mention it. Uh, and since it's the relationship with price and hash rate is obviously pretty key, um, and I want to know your opinions on on basically the current relationship because we we've, we've sort of seen hash rate or we are seeing hash rate and price. Um, Decoupled isn't the best word, but the relationship is definitely in a different position than it's almost ever been. Um, there's clearly buying activity from Bitcoin um, on the market. We've seen the price rebound a good bit. Um, hash price is soaring as a result, but you know difficulty still pretty pretty low. Hash price or hash rate is recovering a little bit. Um, what do you guys make of like? We don't have to get. I don't want anything too like technical in terms of market analysis. But when you're looking at price, as we all uh, do with some regularity, like how are you thinking about it in terms of impacting mining and the relationship between like institutional investors, retail investors? They don't give a shit about hash hash rate necessarily. They just want to own Bitcoin and they are buying it. Um, how do you think about you know those two relationships? Buyers wanting Bitcoin and miners trying to find rack space um, to plug in their machines, and and when you know when hash rate is going to catch up to to where the price is starting to look like it's heading uh, right now. Uh, maybe hand it back to you, Bob, and then and then Austin. How do you think about price and hash rate? Um, I actually wrote an article on this one too. So anybody that finds my other article, you'll see this one. I think it's um, they're they're broken for quite a while. And that there may be some periods of positive correlation. In other words, you know, price going. In other words, hash is going to go up no matter what. Okay. And, and it's going to go up for the next like 18 months, regardless. And it, and it can't go any faster. We, we've already, you know, the, the pedal is to the metal. Hash rate's going to go up at the rate it can go up, regardless of price. Um, if price goes down because of the situation we have so much insulation right now um you know we'd have to it'd have to drop probably by you know 50% from current levels for i think anybody to start saying hey maybe i better turn it off right so i i just i i think it's broken and and eventually probably post the having uh, and and the deployment of this new infrastructure, you'll see them realign, but it's broken. So if if you're a trader, which I'm not, um, but if you're a trader and you've traded patterns of hash and price and looked for gaps, and I've talked to some technical guys that do that, um, find find something else to trade on because it's it, you're going to get wrecked. <laughs> so, 
Interesting. Broken. I, I mean, uh, I feel bad we didn't pull up your other article. I, uh, I haven't read that one yet, but I, I, I pretty much agree with all of that there. I don't know, Austin, same question to you. Um, relationship between hash rate and uh, Bitcoin price. Uh, how, how do you think about it now? Yeah, I mean, historically, hash rate follows Bitcoin price, always has, probably always will to some extent. It just really depends on like the size of the operation that you're putting together when it starts to cash flow, what your financial risk model looks like. I mean, there's a million variables that go into here, right? Like you've got, even if you look back at the 2018 bottom, I think break even was 4.3, 4.4 cents a kilowatt hour. And so taking that number, moving it forward, adjusting for inflation, like who knows what the new break even like bottom is for the next bear market. It could be six cents or six and a half cents of like inflation adjusted from the last one. And so I think ultimately, you know, when it's profitable to mine, people are going to plug in miners. When it's not profitable to mine, people are going to unplug miners. And like the third dynamic variable there is how the difficulty adjusts in those periods. And so right now I, I you know, I look at, and I mean, there's a whole nother monkey wrench that got thrown into this equation where you have like publicly traded miners that can access the public capital markets. And so they aren't as sensitive to these difficulty in hash rate and Bitcoin price adjustments. They're more sensitive to like, wh- like why do the big miners make announcements on like their purchase of, of big tranches, 30,000 machines, right? Because it material affects their their current share price. If the share price goes up just from an announcement, and that's basically reflecting future cash flow from that operation, assuming they get racked and lit, then that's a whole different variable that goes into you know the relationship between hash and like Bitcoin price now. And so I don't know. I think it's broken like medium medium term. I agree with Bob, but at the same time, there's a bunch of other variables that have been added in here. For sure. Yeah, totally. Bob, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks having you guys on. Yeah, thanks, Uh, We've had a ton of fun. Uh, Really appreciate it. Um, For everyone who's watching, Bob and Austin are both on Twitter. Uh, They're great follows. Um, Austin does a little bit of shit posting, but neither of them do too much. We'll we'll have to push him more in that direction. Uh, But beyond that, the GM account does enough, right? (laughs) <laughs> is that True. who's running that one who's behind the, the screen i don't know if i'm allowed to say who's running that account <laughs> i know who it is don't worry we'll keep it we'll it's keep not it me there. it's not me it's not marty it's not todd so oh, it's definitely marty <laughs> uh anyway give them all a follow um beyond the shit posting they're both super insightful check out bob's articles um Gam also has a great podcast uh, covering all things Bitcoin and mining. Um, And definitely uh, like, follow, subscribe. Uh, The live stream here, we're back every week, every Wednesday and Friday um, with more cool guests like Bob and Austin. Uh, It's both of you and also to Will. Thanks for for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun and super insightful uh, for me. I know from the chat, our listeners and viewers have enjoyed it also. Um, So thank you both for taking time on a Friday. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.